Welcome to the latest episode of the Dan Time Podcast. I am your host, Dan McArdle. Thanks for being here. Thanks for the buy-in. If you've been listening for a while, you know that sometimes it's Danny time around here. Sometimes Danielle, Daniela, Daniel, any number of the family of names, as I call it. And then, as you saw last week, I took you on a detour with Sean Perry. No Dan story, no connection, and no real explanation from me there. But, hey, we all need a break from time to time. This show is no exception. I think what I described a few months ago as Dan fatigue. It's a real thing, and I always got to be careful not to wear it out. Okay, uh, some great episodes over the past few weeks. I certainly hope that you've enjoyed them, learned something, felt something, felt, felt like maybe your passions or yearnings or even your struggles were represented. Well, today the time is right. Perhaps it has taken me too long, but I'm presenting to you the first Dana on this podcast. It is such an honor to introduce to you a pro's pro singer-songwriter musician and a veteran live performer who has lived and made music in Canada, Taiwan, the UK, and won over audiences and gained the respect of her peers. If her music is not already in your catalog, you're going to wish you'd been onto these songs, these records, years ago. But it's never too late to catch up, as I found out. Dana Wiley is my guest today. She's been performing over three decades. She sings, plays piano, guitar, multiple instruments, writes, records, and is a self-described lifelong student of musical histories and cultures. Uh, this from her website, Dana's crystal clear voice will cut straight through to your heart, and just to make it a fair deal, her songs will give you a direct route to hers. Now, I discovered that right away and quickly found my own favorite songs on her last two solo records. Dana and I explore her critically acclaimed 2023 solo record, How Much Muscle, also the back catalog, her travels, education, and her upcoming performances in the theatrical production Leonard and Joni, The Untold Love Story, which is appearing in Edmonton, Calgary, and Saskatoon if you're in those areas this spring. The Earth That You're Made Of earned Dana a Canadian Folk Music Award nomination for Contemporary Singer of the Year. The Edmonton Journal raved about how much muscle. Describing it as packed with soul and musicianship, it was included in its Fresh Tracks, a year-end must-listen list of albums from Edmonton artists. The journal also points out that the album was recorded almost entirely live off the floor. Dana is also a part of an Edmonton supergroup, Secondhand Dream Car, which journalist and programmer Peter North has described as the most exciting act to come out of Edmonton since Katie Lang and the Reclines. Secondhand Dream Car has just finished recording their debut LP, Answer the Call, which is expected for release in September. In addition to writing, recording, performing, Dana also offers standard piano, voice, and guitar lessons, and she's helped professional musicians write and learn harmony vocals prior to touring or recording. Lessons are offered in person in Edmonton or via Zoom. So wherever you are around the world, please reach out to Dana if you're an aspiring musician or vocalist at 
Dana at DanaWiley.net for more info. Please also read the testimonials from the students that she's taught. All right, how about we get to the conversation? But first, here's a preview of the title track from How Much Muscle. You can download this song, this album, and Dana's previous efforts wherever you download music. And also order the LP or CD version on her website at DanaWiley.net. And be sure to visit SecondHandDreamCar.com. Folks, it is Dana Wiley time. Edmonton, Alberta, Canada's very own Dana Wiley. Thank you so much, Dana, for being here. How are you doing today? I'm doing just great. I, I love this idea. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> well, I have so enjoyed really just scratching the surface on your music. Wow, the, the most recent album, which, which I really want to put front and center here, and I know we, there's other projects going on that we'll get to, but... How Much Muscle, released in 2023, is, folks, if you've never listened to Dana Wiley before, I would jump in at the new album, start there and work your way back. Probably, you know, that's what I did. I have so many questions about this record, Dana. First of all, cool. the acclaim that it has garnered, I always like to mention to people that I don't just bring any old Dan, or in, in this case, any old Dana on the show, I really want to bring some key players and people that are making a big Im impact and are excellent at their craft. I guess my first question, Dana, this album, it feels like it's a long time coming. It, it's a, a full package, some excellent players. How proud, of, mm -hmm. how proud of it are you now that you've got a few months and it's been out there? Um, I'm, I am, I, I am proud of it. I'm still happy with it. It's always a nice treat when you can go back and listen to a record you made some time ago and, and, and it still sounds good to you. It's still like the songs still represent how you, how you feel and how you see the world and that this, you know, it still sounds good and it doesn't make you cringe horrifically. That's always a good sign. And, um, this one we actually recorded in the summer of 2020 
I had gotten a grant. We're we're lucky up here in Canada to have some public funding for for the arts and for making recording projects in particular. And so we got a grant and then COVID hit. And uh, so we found a way in the summer of 2020 to to make this record. But then, you know, the world was all crazy and life was not what it usually is. And so I didn't end up putting it out until just early last year, but I actually made it quite some time ago. It feels it feels like almost like a previous era of my life in some ways. But um, but I was really proud that and I was happy that despite the situation in COVID, it's a long story how we were able to do it mostly the way we wanted to. But the idea with it was to make a completely live off the floor record, which is not a standard way to make studio albums. But we really wanted to just get the band in a room together and just like lay down these tunes because as you mentioned the players on it are all fantastic and so we weren't because of you know covid oriented situations we weren't able to do it entirely live off the floor but it's but it's largely that just with some sprinklings of overdubs and and i'm and i'm really glad to have been able to do that and i'm proud of that aspect of it for sure because that's that's what i love when an album can capture the kind of live energy that a band has that's those are my favorite recordings. So I was really happy to be able to do that. Yeah, I think I was mentioning to you, and I don't know if this is just a coincidence, but there's such great playing, such a variety. It's such a layered album. And every track, I think, the opening note on each track, it might be the bass guitar. It might be the saxophone. It might be the keys. It might be the vocals. Did you notice that? I don't know that that was a deliberate choice. No, that's an interesting observation for you to make. That's that's cool. Yeah, I really liked it. And again, I haven't had a lot of time to go back to the prior albums, but I have seen on the other records that you take an interest in other people and maybe putting a message out there that they can they can grab hold of and run with maybe in some of their dark times. And mm-hmm. I see how you continue this continue that on this album with like the songs Cry Out and Break, Blow, Burn, specifically speaking to mothers and women who who just carry so much on their shoulders. They're often working moms. They're trying to keep it all together. I was thinking about this today. You know, I'm a dad, and men who are involved, you know, good for us, good for them. But, you know, women often get judged more if they don't look like they're keeping it together, if they if they want to show up in public not dressed very well, uh, men can just walk around like slobs and still be uh, treated respectfully in some cases, in some places. And women just, it's like nobody, like you say in the song, nobody notices in Break, Blow, Burn until mm-hmm. she just finally crumbles, until she finally blows her top, gets angry, and everyone's like, what's her problem? It's like, well... She's taking on a lot over here. And these kids, these, I mean, I've got three kids, and as a dad, they could put you to the brink of insanity sometimes. But it's, yeah, your humor comes out in these songs. And I just like that you're, I can imagine your female listeners saying, Thank you. Thanks for somebody sticking up for me here. Yeah, I, I have gotten that response to that song in particular. And yeah, you got it exactly. That's that's how I tend to introduce that song at at shows is to say that, you know, something that I noticed, particularly when I was when I was pregnant with my second child and, and when he was really young too, because I have I have another 
you know, that was something that that was really getting to me. The fact that, you know, it's like, I'm just working so hard to just barely hold everything together here. And like, that's not noticeable at all. It's only when like, I start dropping the balls and, and you know, and like, you know, losing it a little bit, yeah. you know, it's like, that's when you just find that you're like crying in the grocery store out of frustration because like your kid won't stop having a tantrum or whatever, you know, it's like, it's like, then that's extremely noticeable when you're not holding it together, you know, right. and you are, it's, it's not really noticeable at all. And, you know, that be, kind of became a wider metaphor in the song too, that, you know, um, with a certain other themes that I've explored as part of my graduate studies, that the earth, you know, being, you know, the, the big metaphor for the mother of us all, the one, the, the thing that that carries us all that you know we we tend to look at the earth like it's a kind of a platform or a canvas on which we make things happen you know in a in a very masculine kind of a way like this this is the surface on which we build stuff you know right but to look at the earth more like something that is no that it's a, a mesh work of life processes that we are a part of and that and that you know nurtures us all and allows us to do our nurturing and it's alive you know um like that kind of became a wider metaphor in the song i love a lot of the lyrics here again with cry out i wrote some of these down the stars have already heard your cries even if someone's not paying attention to you the stars are listening that's i think that's just a really sweet message holder of words mm. servant of peace let yourself cry out because you're justified you are beautiful you can fall apart i don't mind Men even, and I've spoken to this on a previous episode, who hasn't been traveling somewhere when you're in your vehicle and you're the only one there? I can assure you a lot of men have let some tears fall out when no one's paying attention. And I feel like this song, if someone was driving down the road listening to Cry Out, they could just uh, take you up on that. Oh, I hope so. You know, I write all my songs to someone. I I don't know. That's just a... That's just a proclivity I have as a writer. I my instinct is always to write to somebody. That's what makes me want to write when I want to when I want to say something to a particular person. You know, that's that's what drives me. And that that song was very much written for one person, a, a friend of mine who's you know just an amazing one of those people that does hold it all together. You know, she's a she's a registered nurse, a brilliant one, and has four kids, and is also a beautiful poet and a songwriter and and I think really prides herself on being you know being able to hold difficult things and you know she she's actually a palliative care nurse so she you know she helps people over the big threshold and you know she and she does it with so much grace and she was going through a particularly hard period in her life where she wasn't so able to hold it together she was really really struggling with some pretty deep things and and that really bothered her because she really she really saw herself as someone who, who helps other people, you know, that's her, that's her whole life. And, and so that was very much to her and to say this, you know, this is okay. I see you going through this. It is okay. It is, it's beautiful. It's part of your process. And like, you know, you can, you know, just wanting to give her permission to, to have a hard time, you know, because <laughs> everybody does. That's right. With that being said, this album, I think really captures you and probably what you like to do in a live setting in front of an audience. It has a very live sound. You achieve, mm -hmm. you achieve that. And it sounds like the players that you have around you, let me mention the names, uh, Daniel, Akira, Stadnicki on drums, Keith Rempel on bass, Brennan Cameron 
on the keys. You've got the horn section on this album, which is, I think it makes some of these tracks very memorable. Speaking of Break, Blow, Burn, I mean, once you get that, dun, 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 you know, you get that in your mind, you can't, I want to keep going back to that song. It's a really good hook. Oh, cool. And uh, so Audrey Ochoa, trombone, saxophonist Dave Babcock, Bob Tildesley on trumpet. That's right, yeah. And then um, produced by Harry Gregg, who I don't want to jump too far ahead, but you do have a side project, kind of a super group from the local area, Secondhand Dream Car, where Harry plays bass. Yep. Um, yeah, we do a lot of things. But it just sounds like you're having a really good time with these players. Um, it's a real, in some tracks, real bouncy feel, real uh, lively, flavorful I had this word, I don't even know if I was I was driving, so I couldn't kind of check myself, but it's just a, some of these songs are really delectable. Uh, oh, that's a nice <laughs> They're just very, it's a very rich uh, medley of uh, these these different instruments coming together. Did you know, like going back to the previous record, The Earth That You're Made Of, did you think at that time about experimenting with the horn section, or was it, how did it come together to, Hey, yeah, let's do actually, it on this album. Um, Earth, Earth That You're Made Of did have a three-piece horn section on a few songs, and it was the same players. It was Dave and Bob and Audrey. The, Dave and Bob and Audrey are like the go-to horn section. I mean, they all have reputations uh, far beyond Edmonton. Audrey actually toured for a year with the, she did the U.S. national tour of Hadestown, for, you know, even though she also teaches at a Catholic school, you know, when she took it, she took a year off from teaching at a Catholic school to, to go and do the U S national tour of Hades town. Like she's, she's, you know, they they all have huge reputations and are just so good. And so for, I can't remember the reason that with earth that you're made of, which I made in 2016, I can't remember why it seemed apt in that album to have horns on a few things. I had never done that before, but we did. And I, you know, I got enough funding to be able to do it. And so that was such a good experience. And I think when getting that band together to perform those songs from Earth That You're Made Of in a live context, that, that kind of became my band. It was like, well, why would you, if, if you can do it like this, why would you not, you know? And so, so then, so very much how much muscle, even though, you know, thematically it's, it goes to a different place than, than Earth That You're Made Of. And sonically in many ways too, it, it very much came out of that, you know, that, that band was formed quite organically from what you know how things went with that that previous album and now that feels like my band you know yeah and your your vocals i haven't even spoken about your vocals yet but folks if you listen to any of these tracks it's going to jump out at you that this is a a seasoned musician um it just has a a natural gift but you do a lot with your vocal range and some songwriters with your talent may not introduce all these other players into the mix you know and i think it's great that your vocals are strong enough but you still invite uh these other layers into the songs well that's the joy of it for me you know like i i love being delighted by what other people bring to it whether that's just like a little lick that just makes you go oh that was so tasty or or whether it's like a whole like you know, if a band member brings a real creative contribution to a song that takes it in a direction that I, I couldn't have anticipated, you know, that's, that's what it's all about. You know, when I do get other players to play my record, it's never about, um, this is my vision and this is how we want the song to be and just play this part and make, you know, 
make, <laughs> make my vision come alive. It, it's, you know, it's like, I, I want the, the people that, that I'm lucky enough to work with have so much to, to, you know, quote unquote, say as artists and as musicians. And that's what, I, that's what brings me joy. And that's what, I, that's what makes, particularly my last two records, that's what makes them what they are, you know, particularly maybe my rhythm section, Dan and Keith, there's another Dan, <laughs> um, uh, they, you know, they, what they bring to the songs, you know, as instrumentalists, it becomes like a key part of what makes the songs what they are, you know, the creative contribution is immense. I'm glad you mentioned that because I think music fans maybe have a tendency to think that if the album cover on every record says Dana Wiley, that Dana is kind of the driving force and like you said she's saying okay I want you to play this this bass line I want you to play this guitar solo that I wrote and maybe people assume that and there are some high profile musicians from major bands that kind of jump off and do a solo record and I'm sure that does go on in those cases but I love what you said there that you're you're there to collaborate and everyone is welcome to bring something to the table yeah, that's that's just how I like to. That's what brings me joy. Like I said, you know. Like, do you ever hear a drum roll and you say, "Hey, wait a second, that's great. Let's let's uh, that's fantastic. I want to keep that in the song." Oh yeah, and and I mean that that's a collaborative process too. That's something that I might point out, or that Harry, the producer, might point out, and or you know it, we might disagree, and then we have some nice, fun, healthy arguments about which you know. Because every take is going to come out a little bit differently because everyone's just in the moment. It's like, it's, it's always a subjective thing, which one is stronger. And that's that's a healthy part of the process, too, which is also part part of what makes it fun for me. I don't know. <laughs> well, one more track that I love on the record, it's the penultimate song, Reconcile. It just, the, the back half of it just rolls into something beautiful. As your, your vocal line is trailing off, Reconcile, uh, the horn section grabs the relay and it just it's wonderful folks if download the whole album but maybe jump ahead to that track and do you have a particular song on the album and i want to get your thoughts on reconcile too but is there one that that you like the most personally um yeah that's a tricky question but i'll I'll say about reconcile that i actually didn't write that one um my friend who i was just talking about who i wrote cry out for she wrote that song and and I uh, was really happy that she was okay with me bringing it to life for this album because she's you know I said like she's a nurse by trade, um, she hasn't done any recording at least so far. She doesn't make music professionally, but I I just thought that was such a beautiful and profound song, that so she allowed me to just kind of take it and um, and we, we took it in quite a different direction than you know her original, how how she would do it and which was fun. And and I believe Dave uh, Babcock was the one who came up with the horn arrangement for that one. And it's so it works so well. He pointed out to me later that it's like it's like a classic like Herb Alpert kind of a horn line, which you wouldn't think would be appropriate for that song. And I was like, that's so true. And yet somehow it works. And it, and yeah, I really feel like it makes that track in so many ways. It's so it's so great. And then the album closes with. Just a, I called it, sparkling cover of the Shirelles, Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow? This is mm. jumping outside the box a little bit, maybe. Is that a song that you've loved for a long time? Is that, how did that yeah. come to be? Or... Yeah, it's a song that I, like, like, if I think back to when I was a kid, like, my first realizations that music was a really exciting thing for me, it was hearing that song, and 
you know, there's a kind of geeky musical reason for that, that I, that I can explain now, you know, at the time when I was a kid, it was just like, oh, something, there's something so exciting about how that song works. Like there's this sparkly thing that happens in it, in which I now have the, you know, knowledge to describe as like, it's where there's a, a major three chord that goes to the six minor chord, which is not, it's a fairly standard move, but it's a great move. And, and it just like, when I was eight years old, like it really fired me up and I've always loved that song. And more than 10 years ago, I, for whatever reason, I don't remember, I, I came up with my own cover of it just on my, you know, messing around on the acoustic guitar. And uh, having lived with that cover for 10 years or so, I just thought, you know, I think you just get it down on this record, you know. 10 years seems like a long time to to sit with one song. And yet I found that I now that I've been doing this for long enough, it actually, you know, it's after you've been doing a song, whether it's a cover song or, or like I do some traditional folk songs as well, you know, a song that you didn't write, you know, to get it in you. Like it's really after about 10 years that you really feel like, okay, this is really, this is really in me now. And I, and I have interwoven with it to an extent that it's its own thing. My version of it is its own thing. And, and so, yeah, I just wanted to put it on the record and, and thought Audrey would write a beautiful horn arrangement for that too. And she, she did. Well, before we get too much further ahead, I probably should jump way back to when all this started, when your career as a singer songwriter began kind of in an unconventional way, or uh, maybe it, you wouldn't have seen it going in this direction, but a, a few events happened. So I guess 20 or so years ago, early 2000s, you were born in Saskatchewan, and then you moved to Edmonton to attend theater school at McEwen. Yep. And then um, maybe being out with some theater friends who also performed, you kind of saw some of your friends playing on stage and thought, wait a second, I wanted, I can do that, I want to do that. And it kind of got that, it scratched that itch or brought, those feelings to the surface and you decided to make a play for it were were you already maybe filling out notebooks with poetry or lyrics or things like that at that point no not really it's, it's an interesting thing like i i never like i i always felt like i was a music person first before i was a theater person i you know when i went to study theater it was you know as a musical theater person because i always thought i was a singer first and i didn't have a lot of opportunity as a kid to do drama because i grew up in a small town where that kind of stuff just didn't exist so but i so i was always a a singer and i i always loved like old standards and you know american songbook stuff i but i didn't my experience growing up in my small town in saskatchewan was that like i didn't ever experience anyone having a band or like playing rock music or pop music or folk music. It was, you know, I I took piano lessons and all of the experiences I had of people actually making music were always in these very kind of institutionalized kinds of ways. I would, I, you know, I took piano and I would compete in festivals and and take exams and do, you know, go through the grades in piano. And, and um, until I was had moved to Edmonton, I never experienced anyone like just having a band or, you know, even getting to go out to live shows and, and see bands play. So it was just wasn't the idea of kind of writing songs in the kind of folk or rock, you know, realm, whatever, whatever that is, it just kind of wasn't in my world. And so it, it was a kind of very strange and revelatory experience to go and like, as you said, you've really done some deep research here. <laughs> like I did, I went to a cafe where two of my fellow theater students were playing because they wrote folky songs and played guitar and 
And I just, I watched them playing their songs and I just, I just thought, I, I know I can do that and I have to do that. And I had never, it had never occurred to me before. <laughs> like, so, but then it just like, it wouldn't let me go. And it was so hard. Like it was such an arduous process. Like, like for, first of all, learning to play piano when I didn't have music in front of me, cause that was the only way I had learned how to do it. But then also just writing i didn't i didn't know how to write songs and and it i it would probably took me eight or nine months to write my first song and it was so I, my memory of it now is that it was so painful and like not comfortable and <laughs> like but it was just like i have to do this like i got to figure this out because this is somehow Im important this is like who i am you know like it was very surprising you know and it totally changed the direction of my life because then i was like okay i, d I don't think i'm actually gonna pursue a life, you know, trying to get jobs in theater. I think I, I think I want to be a musician. And then as I met more musicians too, in around Edmonton, you know, starting to go out and try to play open stages with my songs, then I, I sort of realized too that, oh, I think musicians, as I got to know some, it's like, these are actually my people, you know, my tribe, you know, more than, more than actors who are, who are very different from musicians in lots of ways, you know. So within a couple of years, I'll ask you, you know, how the opportunity presented itself to, to move to Taiwan and continue this exploration. This was, would have been around maybe 05 or so. Take me through that period of time. It's so funny because when you like look back on your life from, you know, the, the now looking back on like the last 20 or 25 years is, it's like, it always makes some kind of, this is my experience anyway, it like makes cohesive sense. It's like, oh, I had to do this because because then that was what enabled this. And it all kind of comes together like a story that le leads up to a certain point. But at the time that I moved to Taiwan, that was like just the most baffling thing I could have done, you know, like, and I didn't know why exactly. And it was it was one of those things where everyone in my life was telling me that it was the worst idea ever because I... I just self-produced a one-person show at Edmonton's Fringe Festival, which is actually the world's second biggest fringe festival. It's it's a it's a big thing we have here, and uh, you know I so I had, you know produced and performed this one-person show that had gone pretty well, and it it seemed like you know as someone in my early twenties that I was probably planting some good seeds to have a a good career in theater and and. Um, and, you know, I was going around to open stages and playing and, but I, but I don't know, it was just like my boyfriend at the time had taught English in Taiwan previously. And, you know, obviously was living back in Edmonton and I don't know, he kind of wanted to go back. And I just had this feeling like I got to get out of here. I, I don't know. I like, I don't know what it was. And, and the prospect of going to Taiwan, that was just the possibility that was there, but I didn't have any feelings like, I should go to this place. I didn't know anything about it. And, and, you know, I had some trepidation about it because I didn't know, first of all, I didn't know if I wanted to spend loads of time teaching English, which was what you, what you do over there as a, as a foreigner. But I, I knew, I knew I wanted to save some money and I wanted to have time to just practice and write. And, uh, but the thought of going to Asia was scary. I had never been there before. I, I thought, how am I going to do anything? I don't speak the language. And, you know, so, but, but I don't know, it just, it had to happen somehow. And, and as it turned out, that particular place, Taiwan was just like the perfect place to be as someone who 
had just decided, okay, music is the thing I want to focus on. So, cause I needed to play, I needed to get better at, at playing and, and I needed to have time to write. And Taiwan is a place where, first of all, there's a thriving expat scene of, of artistic people, because at least the time that I was there 20 years ago, everything that you could do there as a white person, essentially, it usually in the English instructional market in some capacity, everything paid really well. And so I knew a lot of people who had been living in Taiwan for years and worked 10 to 15 hours a week and made enough money to survive and therefore had lots of time to do the art they wanted to do, you know? <laughs> and so uh, filmmakers and musicians and and writers and, and um, so, so going there, it's like I right away had an opportunity to play in all kinds of bands and play all kinds of different kinds of music where like, you know, the bar wasn't that high. And so there was room for me to just kind of not be that good, but still have an opportunity to do it. And, and so I was getting better and I, and I had time to write and yeah. So there were just all these aspects of, of Taiwan as a particular place to go that made it, you know, the perfect place to be. And it's also, it just happens to be a, a wonderful country too, that, that I have still have such, fondness and a real deep love and respect for it's just a great place and then within a couple of years you move to england and that's when you, you form your first band first group of of musicians and as i understand it you just begin this almost frenetic writing recording touring cycle is it kind of a blur looking back at those years uh those first three records which almost there is the, de- the debut december of 06 and then mm-hmm. uh, the unruly ones kind of every couple years, and then something's going to happen here. Uh, yeah, when you look back at that time period, is I look back at my early to mid-20s, I'm, you know, there's some fun, some mistakes, and, and it's kind of a blur. But Yeah, yeah, in many ways it is a blur. Um, and also just so formative. You know, they don't really tell you that, like really through your 20s, you're not really a grown figured out person yet you know you're just like as you say you're just going around having lots of adventures and getting into scrapes and getting yourself out of them and making lots of mistakes and it's you know those those are you know I don't think of my formative years in terms of who who I feel I am now and am still becoming like I I think of that as my 20s not my teenage years or my childhood you know and um and, and again being in England the reason I ended up there was because I had met an Englishman in Taiwan and we had gotten together and moved to England together. So it wasn't a place that I ever thought I would go to. Um, but there were particularities about that place too, that were key to the way in which that was a, a formative period for me. But, and yeah, with, with the band, yeah, we were just, you know, I, I had saved up some money in Taiwan. And so we were able to just focus on our music and, neither of us had day jobs and so we just it was a real grassroots operation we were just in this was 2005 as well so it was pre-social media facebook didn't exist yet myspace was like this new thing that it was like you got to be on myspace but it was still new and so we were just like looking up pubs all around you know the midlands in england which is where we lived and and just saying, hey, would you know, we have our own PA system. Would you hire us on a Saturday to come? Like, how much will you pay us to come and set up in the corner and play a few sets? You know, and like that's how we did it. We were just on the phone all the time and and you know driving around and and playing as much as we could. And 
and then yeah eventually making records and yeah it is kind of a blur and it all just kind of went and went and went until it fell apart <laughs> and, then, and then it fell apart you know as as things do you know yeah you um again in that time period for a lot of people you don't know yet like you know now that you're not really well i don't want to say you're not old enough to you think you're more experienced than you are when you're 23 or 25 or if you kind of realize that you're not you still try to swim with the current i don't know um but wow i mean yeah you created some wonderful music and and the, and the time period is is kind of crystallized i guess you'd say i mean uh, for good or for bad i mean i understand it wasn't all great memories that 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 group of musicians and what you had going on there didn't maybe end that well but the music remains and i, I am happy for that you know i i feel like i don't know that this is true for all artists but you know those first albums that i made with the band um in england we made we made two of them over here actually but but it was all that that band um you know the the musically they're so it's so different from what i'm doing now like it really is an archive of like that's where we were at you know and because those were independent records it's like we had no one who was more professional or more like representing the industry or like labels and things like that you know making us sound more polished and like it's what we were at that time and so that that whole back catalog it it really does exist as an archive and like which is a, an interesting thing to consider i'm so happy for that and yet also if i think about the fact that like like i don't want to listen to those records and if i think about anybody else listening to them it kind of makes me cringe because i'm like oh god like oh the the musicianship is so raw my i my singing voice sounds so young what, what you know the way i was writing it it just totally betrays what a young clueless person i was you know but it's like but i'm also glad for that you know that's real that's it's like an archive i think one thing that remains because I, I listened to a few tracks on the early records but your humor a lot of tongue-in-cheek references it's just it's painted all over those songs and i love that you're not afraid to jump out there and just write something sing something that another artist might say i, I don't know if i want to make that statement i mean there's well i won't I won't bring up any of the old lyrics, but, but <laughs> you do. I think I think you're endearing to your listeners. People that have followed you for a long time, I'm sure they do love the humor in some of the songs because it is a welcome relief. You don't um, you don't want to listen to. It's great if there's uplifting messages and like what we were talking about at the top of the episode, but sometimes you need a little bit of a a little bit of a snicker in some of these topics. Yeah, yeah, that was always strong for me back, you know, particularly back in those days. And I and I came from theater and music, you know, I was really immersed in in musical theater for a good few years there. And it's funny, it's not my favorite stuff. I don't it's totally out of my realm of experience right now, but but at the time like I came out of that. And so in terms of like, you know, approach to lyrics and and approaches to song forms too, like that's the world that that was my knowledge base and and you know, musical theater writing is a bit more like that. It's it's more specific, and it's it's the lyrics in it are are meant to kind of grab your attention, you know, in a way where in maybe more like folk or something like that, it's meant to meant to be more like generally evocative and like you know, 
it's not necessarily a good thing to have lyrics that are really grabbing you in a in a idiosyncratic way you know but that's that's what i'd say if i was gonna you know assess myself as an artist and as a songwriter as a you know as a young person from this vantage point i'd say that 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 was my strength i think i was quite bold in that way i was not not afraid to put out songs that were kind of weird and quirky and and funny you know in in ways that like you know the the music industry even even the folk music industry is not gonna legitimize pro probably and and didn't you know then there you know there are other assessments i can make of aspects where like i had a lot to learn and um but i'd say that that's that's what i had going for me back in those days i i was for some reason kind of unafraid to just kind of throw stuff to the wall like that you know and that was part of the environment too. The people I had around me, and you know, being in England was part of that too. Part of what enabled that, I think. By 2010, you're back in Edmonton, and it's kind of a period where you're thinking, "What should I do now? Which way do I want to turn? What makes sense?" It seems like you wanted to continue to hone your craft, but really get an understanding. You had maybe always had an interest in music theory, and and just going back to school for this sort of thing to continue your career. So you apply at the University of Alberta and then several years later earn your BA music honors degree. Yeah. I can imagine you continuing to write and record, but just we probably don't get uh, the new album How Much Muscle in its same inception without this period of your background. Yeah. How, how proud are you of that experience and what it's done for your career? Um, gosh, that's a sort of a hard question to answer. I think going to university at that time was kind of one of those things that I can make sense of in hindsight, but like truly in that moment, the thing that motivated me to enroll in university was, was like sheer panic and like not knowing what to do because like the thing that had become my whole world was like had, had fallen apart. And like looking back now, like I was in a right, state like I was not not in a good place you know but and for whatever reason and well for I think for a variety of reasons that I you know that I could probably try to make sense of the way I responded to that total existential crisis was to to go to university and part of the appeal of that was just the structure it's like I I knew I needed I needed something that was going to tell me just where I needed to go every day and what I needed to do you know <laughs> like that that was that, and it was it felt like a luxury to be there. To be doing an undergraduate degree in your early thirties is is actually a beautiful thing. Like I might argue, it's the best time to go. You know, you're so grateful to be there. You're never just like, oh, I, you know, like oh, is it going to be on the exam? Do I have how much do I have? The bare minimum I have to learn. You know, it's like you're just like, wow, all I have to do is learn all day. This is wow, how lucky am I? You know, <laughs> like so it really wasn't. I mean, I guess I did at the time see it as a kind of part of a master plan. But at the time, what I thought that master plan was, was that I was like, I'm going to go all the way. I'm going to, you know, even though I'm just starting my undergraduate degree, I'm going to go all the way. I'm going to get a PhD. And I, now I'm going to be a music academic because like, because if I can drop one F-bomb, like, because like the music industry and like, I can't hack this. <laughs> so I'm going to be an academic. That's my, you know, that's the thing I'm now clinging to, you know? <laughs> and so, but I also, I, I loved being in school. It was such a, privilege and and like a luxury in so many ways and so yeah I got my undergrad degree and then went into the master's program but really you know never stopped 
playing at that time, even made an, another album that you may not have even found like at that time, because it's not really out there that, or maybe you did, I don't know, you, <laughs> you did um, a deep dive, but I saw that, that one kind of fell away a little bit, but it, but it did get made while I was in school. But by the time I was, you know, almost all the way through my master's program, I, I had, all, I had realized by that point, it's like, no, I don't, I really don't want to be an academic. Like, first of all, I had discovered that academia is at least as much a racket as the music industry is like it, it truly is. And I, and I just like, after about six years of being in, in university and also having had one child at that point, and you know, I didn't have the second one yet, but I just, I just, I was like, I got to play, like, I got to get back to playing. So for various reasons, I dropped out of my master's program. I'm now back in it, just finishing up the first draft of my thesis, just to get the thesis done. You know, I'm I'm not, I don't plan to participate in academia, but I'm just, I just want to put a cap on this project. So yeah, it was like, as I look at it now, it's like, university was like a very, very valuable and wonderful place to be at a time in my life where I just needed something to hold me. <laughs> You know, right. Like, not me for like dissolving into, you know, thin air because like everything was just, you know, life as I had envisioned it was like clearly not happening. You know, like I, th I think, you know, every, everyone has these points in their life where it's just like you had a plan and you were just like throwing everything at that plan. And then it just somehow it doesn't become sustainable or it doesn't pan out. And, and it just like it makes you feel like you are going to just like go swirling into the heart of the sun or something, you know, it just feels really big. I don't know how to, you know? Yeah. You just feel like you're, you're wandering and adrift and maybe you just, like you said, wanted to plug in some structure and say, yep. okay, I got to fill out my days a little bit more, get them a little yep. more organized. I need to go to bed at a certain time. Maybe that would be good for me. Maybe I need to be told that I need to be somewhere at this time. Yeah, yeah. I remember a transitional period that was kind of funny for my first semester of university. I remember doing most of my homework in bars, like drinking pints, because like that was the environment I was used to being in. And it was like it would have been too much of a culture shock to just go straight to like sitting in the library all day. So I would I would go to the bar and like get a pint and like read, do my reading. Or whatever, right. you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, by 2017, the earth that you're made of record you're finally getting some recognition people are starting to pay attention and um, this record earns you a nomination for contemporary singer of the year with the canadian folk music awards that must have been a big moment yep. just to finally say all right all right i've got this body of work here and i'm i'm proud of this new release and i'm actually getting up to the top of the heap here after all these years yeah, I mean, it did feel like that. I mean, it's it's funny, things like awards like that are, when you do get a nomination for an award or something like that, it's it's a wonderful thing. And it's, you know, you you feel grateful for it. And it serves a purpose. Um, but, you know, it's like, looking back, it's like, th those are never the things that are like, that can make you feel like, just proud of the merit of the work, because there's so many factors that go into who gets nominated for awards versus who doesn't that that have to do with how you're playing the game, you know, and not necessarily the merit, but, but that, you know, that was definitely part of it. There was, you know, the general kind of environment at the time and how I was feeling, I, that was really, it was really making that record where I felt for the first time, like, I feel confident that I do what I do well. And, you know, when you're younger, it's like, 
you know, I dedicated my whole life through my 20s to music making and making all these records and stuff. But really, there was like this huge part of me the whole time just feeling like I'm I'm a I'm a total imposter. You know, it's like this is a classic thing, imposter syndrome. But it's like I think it was when I made Earth that you're made of where I really felt like, no, I think I I, I feel confident that I know how to do this and that I that I do it well. And so that did feel like a turning point in that way. And and yeah, you know, getting that award nomination was was super cool. Like that was very cool. And, you know, a rare thing for me. Dana, my favorite track on the earth that you're made of is Sliver of a Moon. Huh. I, I meant to ask on the new record. I'm always curious how many of these songs survive into the next touring cycle. Do you perform that one much or are you do you like that song? Sliver of a Moon? Yeah, that's that sounds a, like a, that's I should an ask if, if you like your own song. Because it, no, but it, no, that's it's interesting that you would ask that about that particular song because no, I do like it very much and I almost never play it. I have a few songs like that that I really that that people respond to well in on the albums and things like that, but that just don't always feel appropriate to bring out in certain concert contexts for whatever reason. And often that's just because I'm playing in places where, you know, I mean less and less over time, but like I've spent a lot of my life playing in places where you might be competing for attention with you might be playing in a in a bar or something where like the hockey game's on, you know. Like right. Okay. You're, yep. So when when I do do that song live, it's it'll I, I'll pull it out in a context where I'm playing at a festival or in in a soft seat theater or something like that. But also it's it's something that that song in particular, the string quartet on that is like such a big part of what it is that it's interesting that you would have that thought because I I don't play it live that much. Yeah. Yeah, that that song and a, and a few others. I think you have this quality about your singing style, your delivery. It feels like it would be appropriate even decades ago. If you go way back to the maybe the kind of early mid part of the 20th century, this is like a just a throwback, very welcoming oh, yeah. sound. I think it's just you don't hear uh, you don't hear that delivery. Um, that message, I mean, the sliver of a moon, I'm just imagining how the lyrics came to you if you're wandering around one night and observing the moon, and um, that one particularly had an impact with me. Oh, thank you. It's funny, I hadn't thought about it as being kind of, you know, a throwback to the earlier mid-20th century in that way, but that, I mean, music from, from that time, it's very present for me, and it's it's beloved to me, so... That's interesting. Now, let's talk real quick about, man, Dana, you um, you have a lot on your plate, and I was thinking about that today. Do you like to keep a full plate and have just have some activity in several different areas if you can? I'm kind of of cut of that cloth where people, mm. you know I can relax. I like to relax, but not for very long. <laughs> um. Yeah, I would say we're the same in that way. Yeah, yeah. But the uh, yeah. the Leonard and Joni, the untold love story. You're actually back in the, in the theater realm and taking this performance on the road in in Alberta. I wanted to highlight. Yeah, that. yeah, that wasn't something I initiated. Actually, um, there are two the the guys pr producing that show, um, one of whom wrote it. They they approached me to back last spring when they were just got the idea and were wanting to write it they wanted me to do the Joni bits so I talked them into hiring my band for it which they did 
and we did we did it at a, a venue here in October, and, and now we're going on the road. Um, so yeah, that's an interesting opportunity to. It's not exactly theater, but it's definitely storytelling. So you know that the, that skill set definitely comes into play um, in a really wonderful way. And and you know I I definitely had a period of my life where I was way too immersed in Joni Mitchell and had to kind of emerge from that cocoon at some point. But but you know she I I know her. I know her story and I know her catalog well. And, and I mean, you know, Leonard Cohen is so fantastic too. So I, you know, even though I didn't initiate this project, it, I feel so lucky to that someone is doing it and that I'm a part of it. It's, it's, um, it's brilliant. And so they, Leonard, Leonard Cohen and Joni Mitchell had a, a brief love affair in what the mid the late sixties. It was 67. It was, yeah, which interestingly is before, um, before he really got famous. I mean, he's sort of funny. It's like he, he kind of had the height of his fame when he was in his 80s, you know, or late, late 70s. But, but it was before either of them really got famous and before Joni had even released an album. But they, they were both on the early stage of things. Um, and I mean, the story is that Judy Collins had decided to produce both of their songs for an album that she made. She she put both sides now on it. And she also did uh, Suzanne, which the Leonard Cohen song. And this was around the same time period that she had been introduced to the work of these songwriters. And she, I guess, as as a gesture of gratitude for them having, you know, given her these songs to that she, I think, had big hits with. Um, she got she arranged for them both to be invited to perform at the Newport Folk Festival in 67, even though they were both pretty unknown. And that's where they met. And then they they just hit it off. And I think they were together for the better part of a year. And and then, you know, life goes on. And 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 their lives changed quite dramatically from around that point too. So yeah, it's an interesting little often unknown piece of their histories. And speaking of Joni Mitchell as an influence to you, some more press, some more acclaim coming your way from Penguin Eggs magazine once called Dana Wiley. The, you're the only artist that they are comfortable comparing favorably to Joni Mitchell in the scope of her talent ever. Uh, so that's some high praise. That was a, that was the thrilling one for me to read. For sure. <laughs> that was, I can see, you know, I, I mean, it's, you know, jo Joni Mitchell's acclaim as an artist is pretty universal. So it's generally speaking, it's high praise, but you know, for me personally to having, I feel like I have a complicated relationship with her music, but, but a deep one. So, so um, yeah, that's one of the most thrilling things I've ever, anyone's ever said to me or written about me for sure. <laughs> um, and then also the, I haven't heard any of these songs, but I'd love to. The release date is September of this year. And we mentioned, I think at the top of the episode, secondhand dream car, the mm -hmm. Edmonton area supergroup. Uh, you've been doing a residency at a local club there, and the, yep. the album Answer the Call is uh, planned for later this year. Se seems like you're having a lot of fun with this, and what's the response when you guys are out there? I'm, I'm sure people that are part of the scene all kind of get together, and then naturally you just, well, hey, what if we did this? What if you want to come up and jam, or do you want to, I guess it just comes together if you've been around a while and you make friends. Do you have a lot of fun just getting up there and, and playing with people that you've known for a while? Yeah, it's it's fantastic. It's very special. Um, I mean, you you mentioned earlier that this was a side project, but I, I almost feel now like 
my thing has become a side project and I'm, I'm pretty focused on secondhand dream car right now because it's, um, it is, it is one of those things that just sort of came from being around. Um, three of us in the band actually were, were just asked to come together to, to form a house band for something called a pro jam, which was happening at a different venue actually. Um, which, which was a kind of a meant to be a thing where like, kind of like a jam, a jam night, but for professional musicians and they wanted to have a house band that played at the beginning of the night. And so I was asked to be the keyboard player and singer in that band. And um, my good friend, Harry, who also has produced my last three records, he was asked to be the bass player. So obviously we had history. Um, and the person actually putting that band together is the drummer, Jamie Cooper, who I had never played with before, although like we knew each other socially. And so, and we had another guitar player playing with us named Enoch, who, who had, you know, he has his own project, so he hasn't ended up in this band. But, but yeah, we started playing together once a week, learning a few cover tunes to do this gig, basically. And, and after about six months of that, we were just really starting to feel like, wow, we really, we're vibing pretty nice together. You know, this is starting to feel like it, like it's something. And, and, you know, two years on from that, we are very much a band. We brought some other people into it and, and yeah, we've we've recorded an album and we're playing every week. To have a residency as a as a new band and play every week is just the most valuable thing. And um it's very exciting. Um it's it's different. It's kind of like soul, soul roots blues rock music. I you know, it's it's quite different from from what I do, but it's like music that's so close to my heart. And yeah, when when a band comes together where it's really, really just working in it so clearly that like greater than the sum of its parts kind of a thing. It's like, that's a special thing to be nurtured and, and to just be grateful for, you know? Well, I can't wait to hear the music and I'm excited without even having heard it, that you're shifting your focus in this direction. Because if I feel like I've heard the best of Dana Wiley on how much muscle, I can't wait for what's coming next. And I, oh, yeah. I, I, wish... I think you're going to love it album yeah I'm, I'm excited for you i wish i was a little bit closer to the area but you know you never say never I, I i like to travel so hopefully one day um speaking of edmonton for some people my listeners who have never visited that area how uh vibrant is the local music scene uh the art scene and if they just want to go take it take a trip there that's a great question. Um, Edmonton has a really particular and rich cultural history. I'd say that, you know, the music scene right now, um, I, I'd like there to be more going on. And with us starting up this residency, um, playing every week, we like we have a strong intention to we want to move the whole scene in the direction of where Edmonton can be the kind of town where any night of the week, if you want to go hear great music, like you can do that somewhere. You you know you can go hear a great band because we have so much. There's so many great local musicians. Um, um, and that we're trying to kind of push the culture in that direction, because it we really did once have that. And um, thanks to, I don't know whatever the cultural environment was in the in through the 60s and 70s. Um, it it allowed for so I mean the Edmonton Fringe Festival, which is a theater festival, was founded in 1980, which is the same year as the folk festival here. And this was all started by, you know, grassroots. These were totally grassroots operations. And, uh, you know, Edmonton has always had that. And I felt that when I moved here in the late 90s, nearly 20 years on from these things, you know, this part of the 
of the cultural legacy. I felt that, like I felt it immediately when I moved here. I was like, this is a place where people just make stuff. They don't wait for, you know, someone in Toronto to like notice them and give them a pile of money, like, or, or whatever it is, people just make stuff, you know, and, and they find a way to make it work, whether they have money or not. And, and that's why I fell in love with the city. And that's, that's why having left the country for several years, when I came back, it was like, there, there was no question for me where I would move back to when I came back to Canada. Um, because that is, so that's what I feel is special about Edmonton. And it had, you know, it has to do with all kinds of like economic factors, like where, where Edmonton has, has fit in the, you know, the larger economy of Alberta and Canada that it's been, it's never been quite as moneyed as Calgary because all, you know, here in Alberta, it's, it's oil and gas country. And, you know, all, all the oil companies, they have their offices in Calgary and Edmonton has traditionally been a bit more blue collar, but it's the capital city. So we have the provincial legislature here. Um, so this, you know, this matrix of all kinds of factors that, that have meant that like what has grown through the latter part of the 20th century and, and into this one is, is like a real grassroots cultural scene, which is in theater, theater and, and music and, and, you know, other, other artistic pursuits as well. And um, so our, our thing with our band is that, is that we feel like for various reasons that that's been lost a little bit. Like, you know, for the fringe festival now is still, it's still a wonderful thing, but it's huge now. And it's, you know, it's, it's a lot more corporate than it used to be. And, you know, like everything moves in that, you know, the, the Edmonton folk festival now is also huge, you know, like they sell 25,000 tickets and, and they, they hire two local acts every year. They hire dozens and dozens of acts, the vast majority of which are not from Edmonton, you know? So it's like, the bigger it gets. Uh, we, we really, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, that's that's how things go, I guess. But we we really feel like, and I've, I've always felt very strongly like Edmonton has this. And I can appreciate that as someone who, who moved here at some point, who didn't, you know, grow up here and take it for granted. It's like, it really blew my mind when I first moved here at the age of 17, particularly in contrast to where I was from, you know, a small prairie town that just didn't have you know, everything kind of revolved around, you know, hockey, really, you know, so uh, with our with our band, like we we hope to be a part of, of moving our scene in the direction of I, I think back in the direction of what it always has been like back to its heart as a really vibrant grassroots, you know, and proud to be what it is, you know. I was reading about uh, the Ravenwood Festival. I guess you <laughs> played that last year. Yes. Oh, no, I played a few years ago. I think it was 2018, but I, they have a music club. Oh, uh, they're doing right. a whole season. And I did that just last week. But I love this, um, uh, this quote that you said about live music, live settings are where music lives. It's so important, not only to the local music community, but to the community in general. I love how you say that because a vibrant music community just kind of spills out into the, the rest of the community. And, yeah. It it music includes people. It welcomes people. You can usually show up to a music venue wearing what you want to wear, being who you want to be. You can come with a pack of people. You can walk in by yourself. Music is is welcoming. Um so I just love how you say that. Yeah, that's so true. That's well said. And wow, we could keep going and going. Uh we'll probably have to cut it a little bit short, but I also want to speak to the duets album that you've got scheduled with Sammy Volkov. 
that's I have no idea what that's about. I mean, other than um, yeah, that's just another thing, you know. You got to have a lot of things on your <laughs> like. That. But I wanted to put that out there. Everybody listening, also check out Makings of a Voice. Yeah, that's kind of a theater storytelling piece that I um, have done a few times o- over the last well since twenty twenty one. I guess I wrote I wrote it through through 2019, 2020. And then in 2021, I performed it. And then I did it at our Fringe Festival, actually, just this past summer. And, you know, how that, how and why I decided I wanted to write, what, what it is, is a, it's a storytelling piece that's extremely personal and autobiographical and, and interweaves my songs with the storytelling. Um, so it's not exactly a play, but it's not a concert. And I don't know quite what it is, but, um, and I couldn't tell you now why I felt at some point a few years ago, like this was a thing I really needed to do, but I did. And um, so I, I don't know when I'll, when I'll perform it again, but, um, but you know, it, it addresses all kinds of things about being an artist and being a mother and, you know, cut the complications of maternal lineages and things like that. Now that you mentioned motherhood, I forgot to really dedicate time to this topic. We'll try to do it real quickly. How has being a mother as a creative person, you know, young kids, they can they can kind of get in the way uh, or kind of disrupt just everyday tasks around the house that can drive you nuts. But when you've got an idea and you want to be working on something, but, well, I, I also have a two-year-old, so I, I need to uh, shelve this for a while. Uh, do you go through stuff like that? I mean, we love our children. I'm not trying to paint a different picture, but uh, how has motherhood and your your craft blended? Do they coexist? Do you include the kids? Yeah, I think they they really do coexist, and and I mean I prefer them to. It's not it's not nice when life starts to feel super compartmentalized, you know. Although it does inevitably, there is a real contrast between, you know, for example, last night was the night I do the residency with Secondhand Dream Car, so I was out at a blues bar playing from eight to midnight. And then I get, I get home late and I get to bed late. And, um, and you know, then I got to get up in the morning and it's this whole daytime. It's like, in some ways the contrasts are very real, but, but they, they weave together and, you know, my kids will, you know, I teach music lessons in my house too. That's part of how I make my living. And, you know, sometimes my son is playing in the living room while I'm teaching a piano lesson because that's how it has to be and sometimes my kids come to gigs with me and I went back to England last summer for about two weeks um, to do some shows with my old bandmates and my 10 year old came with me and that was her first big trip away from Canada and and it was you know it was all kinds of things it was it was challenging to to bring her and it was also fantastic and in the end like for her to have had that experience felt afterwards like the main reason to have done it you know so for me it's like integration is is always what what you want you know you want life to just feel like it's one thing you know and it's funny because you know yeah inevitably having kids makes it really hard to be a creative person and a musician in particular like I I I think it is true you know I don't have stats to back this up but I think it is true that the vast majority of of women making music full-time and participating in the industry don't have kids I I think that it's it's certainly my observation um, because it's not it's not easy. What what music a, as an industry asks of you is kind of total 
you know. Um, but on the other hand, it's like I can't conceive of being able to, you know, be creative and do all this stuff with like having kids was just so essentially grounding for me in a way that I, I don't even want to think about the person I would be right now if I didn't have kids, you know, it's like, cause I mean, you know, this, cause you have kids. It's, it's so, it's so grounding. Like it's at some basic level, you have to function like a grown up when you have kids, like, even if that's just at a real basic level, right. you know? Yeah. You have to make concessions and, but I think you, you have a unique opportunity as, as do any musicians, artists, performers, you've got children, children are naturally, they want to look up to their parents, you know, kids still, unfortunately, who have fathers who just disappear and never send them a birthday card and just, you know, they just go away. Kids still long for that parent, you know, it, they could be just the worst at that job, at being a parent, whether it's something that bad or you're just on your phone all day and not playing with your kid, you know, your kid still idolizes you. And I try to check into this myself that many, many years from now, when, when we're gone, just like we do with our parents, we're going to tell stories. We'll be in our, or our kids will be in our, in their thirties and their forties and their fifties. And they'll be talking about, Oh yeah, this was, this is how my mom was. This is how my dad was. And you're mm. kind of getting a chance to craft that story now. Um, so I mm. think some parents don't check into that as often as maybe they could. I don't want to preach to anybody, but yeah, you, um, they look up to you, whatever you do, uh, whether you're an electrician or a musician or a lawyer, they, they look up to you and they will, they will talk about you when you're long and gone. I mean, when you're, uh, long gone. Yeah, that, that, that's so true. And I, I, I always feel like there's a balance to be struck. I mean, I, I, I guess all parents and maybe mothers in particular must feel like this, but I certainly feel like so much of like who I am as a person I, I don't I don't think of as being very mom-like in a, in a way. And in, in many ways, like this is something that I address in my show, Makings of a Voice, that I was raised by a mom who in many ways was not very mom-like. You know, it's a it's it's like one of the one of the lines that people remember from my show, which is a thing I actually said to someone in real life one day, a guy like this was before I had kids and I was actually in Taiwan and I was at a bar I was talking to this guy and I don't know how the topic came up, but he asked me if I thought I would have kids one day. And like the thing that just came out of my mouth without even thinking was, no, I don't think so. Cause like I was raised by a long line of women who shouldn't have had kids in the first place. Like, you know, like, <laughs> like that my mom and, and my grandma, my, my Baba on, on my mom's side in so many ways, like these are, these are women who like, like in so many ways, like weren't that well suited to being a mother. And like, I feel that about myself too. Like my life, you know, what my kids see me do, the shape of my life, the kind of the lack of routine and regularity in it. I mean, you know, kids, kids really do need routine and rhythm. And it's like, my life does not have that. And like, there are all these ways that, that I feel like, oh, this is not, you know, <laughs> this is not normal. <laughs> and like, maybe, maybe it's not ideal, but I, then I also think, but you know, it's like, I also like me, you know, living my life in a way that's increasingly authentic to me and to them and and you know just like following 
you know, what, whatever that is that we follow in our lives, learning the lessons we need to learn. It's like that my kids are part of that. And they're, they're, you know, they're, and, and as you say, they're observing me, me do that. And, you know, like they're, there's no scenario where I could, where it would be the right choice for me to decide, you know, a good mom is like this and is around and doesn't work and doesn't go out and play gigs until two in the morning, you know, and, and so I'm going to do this. It's like, that wouldn't make me a better mother because the, it's like the kind of classic maternal self-sacrifice. It's inevitable, but if you carry it too far, it's, I think it would be a detriment, you know? Sure. Well, I like what you said about just authenticity parents often don't have a lot of control over our schedules or what we're called on and uh, different things pulling us in different directions. There's times where I'm taking my baby daughter to her caregiver in the morning and I'm walking from the car down the sidewalk to that front door and I'm realizing, wow, this is about the only time that I'm going to get to hold her until the end of the day, but then when we all come home, it's going to be the boys and my baby girl, Vivian. I'm not going to get to just hold her exclusively, so this is like just a fleeting moment. And, yeah. Uh, and that dawns on me, but I just think, well, just try to make the most of this time, be authentic, and... Um... Yeah, and, and yeah, for me, it's like just trying to be present, you know, because you're not always there, as you say, but it's like, that's the thing I feel I have to keep working to get better at. Well, wow. I feel like we could explore this topic. Maybe yeah, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> another episode. I always mention a second episode. So this time next year or whenever, I would love to reconnect with you and talk about your current projects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would, I would love to do that. That would be so great. Uh, this has been fantastic. I usually try to pepper in a little lightning round of stuff of just some silly questions maybe one or two if you've got interest in yeah. something like that sure how do you are you a, a breakfast person i am a huge breakfast person where it's like feed me everything that i could possibly eat and i don't have time to do all that but if i did i would do the pancakes the bacon the eggs the everything probably not every day it's not very healthy but are you uh, the type of person when you wake up that you you want to you want to eat a big breakfast, or are you okay with just some coffee and let's get this thing going? Well, here I yeah I love a big breakfast, but I want it about three hours after I get up. <laughs> I want to like <laughs> I want to like I want to get up because I'm like I'm a nighttime person really naturally, so like I want to get up in the morning and just have coffee and ideally sit around like and not. I have, I really struggle with the whole, like, you know, the whole get up in the morning and like, got to get the kids lunch ready and like make a million things happen right away. It's like, that's, that's hard for me. I ideally, I, I would just like get up and like sit around with a cup of coffee for a while. And then like, yeah, once I've been up for a couple hours, then yeah, yeah. Bacon and eggs and the whole bit. Yeah. I love, love that. <laughs> um, when you don't have a gig and you're, and you don't have to be anywhere or do anything, what are you most inclined to do? And there's no wrong answer. Do you like to watch a, a documentary? Do you like to, are there series that you like to watch or movies? Or do you want to just open a book? Or do you ever just want to, sometimes I, I'll look at park benches at times and I'll think, wow, it's been a long time since I've just seen somebody or 
or been there myself sitting, just sitting and looking at my surroundings and not looking at my phone, not being occupied with anything, anything else, just sitting. That's a bizarre twist on that question, but what do you like to do? Yeah, this, <laughs> um, gosh, I, I don't watch things that often. Mostly I find that I don't have time. Maybe, maybe the downtime you're talking about just doesn't happen yeah. that often, but, um, I do, I mean, I, I, I do like to read too, but probably don't do it as much as I would like to because um, I feel my plate, like, as you say, I've, I've filled up my plate quite a lot. So there's just like, usually if I, if I reach the end of a task and it's like close to the end of the day, it's, it's probably not good how often, even if it's like 11 or 1130 at night, I'll, you know, in that window between that time and going to bed, I'll find some other little thing that I need to get done, you know, like, that's um, so that's hard, but I, but I really like going for walks. Um, and, and I kind of, I've gotten better at identifying more often moments where it's like, okay, th like I need to go, as you say, like, just not, not tackle anything, not take in any information and just go be out and like, look at stuff and and you know we have a pretty extensive river valley here in edmonton um with a lot of green space and it's quite forested and so to go be able to walk in the valley and just it smells different than the rest of the city and that for me is really valuable because for me like watching documentaries or reading books it's like it's just how i work like that's not even really downtime for me because i'm because i engage intensively with those things you know <laughs> like you said uh where wherever you live there's something outdoors that you can go explore uh, even for 30 minutes. And uh, mm. that sensory engagement, when you just go for a walk, it's more than just, oh, it's a sunny day. It's uh, you just, you start noticing things, you start smelling things that you're not expecting. And yeah, it gets you outside of yourself. I think that's a big part of it and a big benefit to it. I, I've just uh, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with you. I hope you have as well. I definitely have so much. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for participating in the show. This is uh, the Dan Time Podcast, folks, but I probably don't say it enough. It may appear that something like this is, is about me, and if it's not. It's, it's just a quirky way for me to present people who are named Dan or pretty close to it. Why? I'm still trying to answer that question, but hey, look what we've created here. It's it's fun. I'm I'm really trying to encourage people, like I said at the very beginning, to get outside your bubble, but also demonstrating through what I'm doing here that uh, you can find a common thread with other people, and it might just be the letters in your name. But thanks for being here, Dana, and I wish you wish you all the success here in the new year and uh, with your projects going on. Real quick. I'll mention it in the show notes, but DanaWiley.net is the website, D-A-N-A-W-Y-L-I-E.net. Any other plugs that you that you like to put in for people? Um, well, my my band uh, has a website too, SecondHandDreamCar.com. Uh, so I guess you know people can check that out too. Okay, and um, and so just. We, I sometimes pump out all the other social channels, but really, if you go to these websites, you'll get to the other places that you want to go, and you can find out the performance schedule on either end. Okay, well, thank you so much, Dana, and 
We'll reconnect hopefully later this year. Remember, folks, if you're going through something right now, which which everybody is, you've got people who who are rooting for you to succeed, to get through it, to let it all out, and they don't even know you. And that's people like Dana Wiley. So make sure you download or you can purchase an LP version of her latest solo record, How Much Muscle. I cannot emphasize enough. Please take a shot on this album and be on the lookout for new music from Secondhand Dream Car. You guys have a great rest of the week, and we'll see you next Sunday on the Dan Time Podcast. Thanks so much, Dana. Oh, that was so much fun. How much muscle it takes to fly? How much muscle it takes to fly? How much muscle it takes to fly?